be interviewed on the pitch at half time and it was the most nerve-wracking thing <laughs> I've ever done because you've got 20, 22,000 people and I've seen people get booed. I don't normally pray, Simon, about football. But I prayed, oh Lord, make the crowd happy at half time. 39th minute, we scored 1-0. Brilliant. Well, welcome everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. It's great to be back with you. Inspired, for those of you who are new to us, uh, it's sort of upbeat and uplifting. It's introducing you to friends of mine from all sorts of different walks of life. It sort of celebrates dogged perseverance, gritty overcoming, costly faith. And as we listen to people's stories amidst so much rubbish and bad news that we're constantly bombarded with, the aim is to stir faith, to stir uh, encouragement and challenge so that uh, we live our lives to the full. So that's sort of what we're aiming for. And this week, I'm very excited to have Jeremy Marshall with us. I've never actually met Jeremy. I know uh, two of his sisters, um, but we've got sort of, sort of some shared experiences in the mix. Jeremy, if I can say this, I mean, from your blog that I read, you were supposed to die back in December 2016, i.e. you've just had a bonus five years in a sense. And I can see that you are totally maximizing it, which I love. On Facebook, you put down in your blurb, husband, father, speaker, author, and you've written two books since that diagnosis of cancer. You're a retired banker, you're a CEO, you're, for your sins, you're a Watford uh, football club fan, uh, cancer patient trustee. So there's so much we want to unpack. Uh, welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Simon. So Very kind I, of you. It's great to have you. I, I heard about you through my mate Hutch, who's the chaplain here at Moncton Coombe. You, you spoke to my kids at the school there. And uh, it, I'm really privileged to have you with us today. So, Jeremy, why don't, let's, let's go back to your childhood and uh, tell us a bit about yourself for context. Sure. So I was born into a strongly Christian family. My father was a free church pastor in the kind of Lloyd-Jones mold, mm -hmm. 50 years in the same church. And uh, he was quite a character. So every summer when I was young, he would take me and my three sisters and my mother Bible smuggling behind the Iron Curtain mm. um, in the 70s, which was great fun. As kids, we thought that's what everybody did. Everybody went Bible smuggling. My father was kind of a buccaneering character because lots of his friends said, John, you're crazy to take your kids Bible smuggling. Why don't you send some money to open doors? Mm -hmm. But he liked a bit of excitement, a bit of danger. I guess the worst that could have happened to us would have been we'd been kicked out, but that never happened. What was fun was spending seven, eight hours at the border of the USSR, for example, while they went through the car, mm. trying to figure out what uh, my father was up to. And um, dad always said, never tell a lie. So they would say, have you got any Russian Bibles? And he would say, yes. And under the Soviet constitution, I'm allowed to bring them in for personal use. And then they would have a haggle about, well, how many can you bring in? And then eventually we'd go through and dad, who taught himself Russian from Linguaphone records mm -hmm. in the local library, would turn up at these churches. Often the pastor would be in a labor camp or something. And outside the church, you'd have the KGB keeping an eye on everything. And the people were a bit surprised 
to meet this eccentric Englishman. Mm. But what they had said was, it showed them that people in the West cared. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so important, isn't it, to know that people care. People often feel forgotten. I remember, well, in Burundi, because of the war, basically everyone from the outside left for for years and years. And so just being there in the war years, I spent six, seven years in, in, in the second half of the 13-year war, if you like. And people just said that, you know, the ministry of presence of being there, we felt forgotten. And that brought such encouragement. So anyway, your dad sounds phenomenal. I would lo- love to have met him, my kind of guy. Um, did you have any sort of really dramatic stories of protection in that time? Um, as a child, you don't really know what's going on. Mm. But um, several times we used to get lost a lot. Mm-hmm. And there are only certain official routes that you're allowed on. So sometimes we get stopped by the police and told you're in a forbidden zone. And my father would disappear off for uh, sometimes hours. And when they come back and he said, well, they just gave me all these papers to sign in Russian. So I just signed them. One thing he instilled in us was secrecy. One time in Romania, one of my sisters was outside the church in the car. And someone came up to her and said, what are you doing here? And uh, she said, "Uh, I don't know. He said, well, what's your name? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> so when my father came back, he, he was very approving and uh, thought that was an excellent answer, being as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Yeah, brilliant. So obviously your faith is being shaped uh, by those experiences and what you're being modelled. When, when would you say or describe your coming to Jesus yourself? Yeah. I mean, my father was a very strong character. Every Sunday we had at least three and a half hours of him teaching one way and another. Ouch. Dad thought a sermon under an hour was worth a candle. <laughs> so, not surprisingly, being a typical rebel, and look, we're all rebels, aren't we? Mm. Not, not only against our parents, but against God. Mm. I didn't like church. I didn't like being told what to do. And... Um, Becoming a Christian for me was realizing I was heading on the wrong path, you know, to disaster, and I needed to do a U-turn. But it was nothing to do with Dad, and I think that was a good thing, probably, because the typical, you know, son, you both want to kill your father and be your father, right? Mm. One thing that I learned from my father that I think is very important for Christian parents now is let your children argue with you. My father was very strict, very, very strict. Too strict, I think, in a way. Mm -hmm. We weren't allowed to go to the cinema, to the theater, TV was banned, and then and. But you could say anything you liked, including, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't believe in God, Mm -hmm. even, I think you're a boring preacher. (laughs) And Dad would encourage that and engage with us. Mm -hmm. He would say, arguing is the respect the young pay to the old. Mm -hmm. And I think very often, I see that in youth groups all the time, we're afraid of debate. Mm -hmm. We're afraid of our teenagers saying, what about same-sex marriage? Or what about, you know, the first few chapters of Genesis? Let your children argue with them. Mm. allow them to say anything and for me 
You know, my father never said, believe it because I say so. Yeah. He said, believe it because it's true. Mm. And this is why I think it's true. Mm. So at what age would you say you made that sort of personal commitment to follow Jesus? I would say as a teenager, but, you know, I think in a way, following Christ is as important Mm. as the initial moment, right? Lots of people have some kind of experience of Christ, but they don't follow up. I mean, in the Bible, Jesus calls his disciples, follow me. So that process of following, all I can say is that, you know, God held me when I was wandering off Mm. and struggling with things. And I could not follow unless he led me. Mm. So moving ahead, you ended up in banking. Was that always the trajectory? What took you there? Well, I'm rather proud. As my, shouldn't be proud, should we? But <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of having gone to a state school, as did my sisters. One of my sisters, as you know, is married to a housemaster at Eton. Mm-hmm. And she always loves it when people say to her, oh, where did you go to school? <laughs> so we all went to the local comprehensive and uh-huh. somehow I managed to wangle my way into Cambridge and then yeah after that um, as the only boy in the family my family for generations have been either pastors uh, my uncle was also a pastor was an assistant minister of Westminster Chapel mm-hmm. or teachers the women teachers the men pastors but I had no interest in that I wanted to make some money right. so that's what I did I went into banking but I don't think that was wrong Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I think, Simon, we have this misguided teaching that to be a serious Christian, the highest calling is to be a missionary in cannibal-infested islands, yeah. then next a missionary in non-cannibal-infested islands, and so on. Mm. So there's kind of a two-tier pyramid. Yeah. People who work for the church or are missionaries, and then in the middle, people doing useful things like nursing or uh, teaching or whatever, and then at the bottom, dreadful people making money, and right at the bottom, appalling bankers. Yes. But that's not in the Bible. Every legal, lawful profession Christians are called to, and actually, you know, we can come on to this. I and some friends bought a bank recently, a Christian bank, and I couldn't have done that if I'd been a pastor. Mm. So God calls each of us to be ambassadors for him. And, um, yeah, I loved banking. I worked all over the world. Um, I mainly worked in private banking, Mm -hmm. which is helping very wealthy people, such as yourself, Simon, Mm -hmm. invest their vast (laughs) fortune. And uh, that was an amazingly interesting job. One thing I learned was that the very wealthiest people in the world, I'm talking about billionaires, are not happy, many Mm. of them. That's the lie the world puts out, that all the devil puts out, that in a national lottery, let your dreams come true. Mm. The actor Jim Carrey said, I wish everyone could have their dreams come true so that they could see that having their dreams come true doesn't make them happy. Mm. And that's that's what I've seen. Mm. So you were, were you CEO of the bank in the end? Yeah, I ended up 
which was a dream job. And Simon, as you're in Bath, I guess you know Stourhead, right? Mm-hmm. So Stourhead is the seat of the Hall family. The house is National Trust, but right. all the land and forest round still belong to them. And I was fortunate enough to be the first ever non-family member to be CEO of Hall's Bank, which is 350 years old mm. and owned by the 11th and 12th generation of the family. And they were marvelous people mm-hmm. to work for. And the bank was absolutely amazing place. It's got a fantastic head office in Fleet Street. I've uh, been there since 1690, full of old masters, just a dream job. So what lessons or what advice would you give to people who are on that trajectory? I mean, you're clearly very successful at the top of the tree. What would you want to share with folks who are heading that way? Um, John Wesley, earn all you can, give all you can. So there's nothing wrong with being a Christian billionaire, as long as you don't get it through drug dealing. But give away the absolute maximum you can. That's something I'm passionate about. I'm a trustee of stewardship, which is a great place to look for resources on philanthropy. I'm also um, very involved in gospel patrons, Mm -hmm. which is um, encouraging people with money to give money away. So that's one thing. Secondly, share your faith. And in a work context, how do you do that? Nail your colors to the mast early. Mm. Start as you mean to go on. Daniel 1 shows us that. And how's Daniel witnessing? Firmly but politely. Mm. Well, how can we witness? Here's the easiest way. Pre-COVID, you're having a coffee Monday morning. Your friend says, how was your weekend? You say, oh, it was great. We had a wonderful barbecue at church. Mm-hmm. Then stop. You've sown a little seed. Yeah. See how they react. Some people will change the subjects. Others will say, oh, you go to church. That's interesting. By the way, how do you continue? You ask people questions. I'm passionate about personal evangelism. If you want some ideas, go to a passion for life, which I'm the co-chair of. Mm-hmm. That's a big organization trying to encourage Christians to share their faith. And there's a bunch of stuff from learned Christians on there, plus me, about how to do personal evangelism. Yeah, my next tip in a work context is ask your friend a question. And here's the question to start with. After you've established you go to church or you believe in God, how about you, Simon? Do you have any particular beliefs? And mm. then shut up. Mm. Don't argue with them. Just draw them out. Be curious. Ask people lots of questions. Yeah, it's not difficult, is it? We just got to be good listeners and uh, and uh, and a context of relationship. I, I find it very easy to to share uh, my faith and to listen to their point of view, as you say, without interrupting or, or or telling them they're wrong or just being good listeners. But I think people are scared, aren't they, to to broach personal evangelism? Yeah, I think questions are the way to go mm. because you know, ask a question. It's a very gentle thing. Who's the king of questions in the Bible? Mm. The Lord. Yeah. There's been 172 questions mm. Jesus asked. So if the first question is, how about you? Here's the second question. Did you ever look at the Bible? Mm. 
mm-hmm. 95% plus of my friends know. No, never looked at it. Mm-hmm. They don't know anything about it. So here's the third question. Would you like to have a chat with me about the Bible? And I love using Word one-to-one, which is simply John's Gospel with notes. I've had loads of people, especially since I've had cancer. Mm. I've got about a dozen people I do that with, and people just love it because they don't know anything about it. It's new, it's fresh, and the power is not in us. The power is in God's Word. Mm. So one day your life changed. Uh, you were at the top of the tree, um, doing superbly well. And then what happened? It happened in two stages, Simon. So about this time, nine years ago, I found a tiny lump on my ribs. I ended up at the Marston, who told me, you got this rare type of cancer called a sarcoma. Mm-hmm. It's a cancer of the muscle tissue. But we caught it early, should be able to treat it. So I went through about six months of treatment, carried on working most of the time. Mm-hmm. And then for about two years, they said, all clear. I went back for checks. And then six and a half years ago, I was with a friend having dinner here in Seven Oaks, and I went to adjust my collar. And as I did that, I felt a massive lump mm. on my collarbone, like a golf ball. Mm. And I felt sick to my stomach because I knew what it was. Mm. So I said, I'm sorry, I need to go home. I went back to the hospital with my wife. We were waiting after some tests in the waiting room at the Marsden. The nurse said, please come through. We walked down a little corridor mm. and she said, uh, I'm really sorry. That was the only warning I had. I went into the room. There were loads of people there and they said, look, we're really sorry. We don't know how we missed this. A year or so later, they decided it was a completely unrelated type of cancer, but you've got tumors everywhere and we can't cure you. You've had it basically. So you say, well, how long do you think I've got? Mm-hmm. They said, well, you can never exactly tell, but 18 months. So at that I burst into tears. Please don't think I'm some kind of cancer expert or super Christian. Mm-hmm. Having incurable cancer is really hard. Two reasons. One, the physical side effects of treatment. I've had 36 chemotherapies. Oh, wow. A dozen operations. I lost the sight in both eyes. Um, I've got it back in one eye. Um, so I was blind for a while. I also last year in lockdown had what felt like a heart attack. They still don't know what it was. It may have been COVID. Who knows? So that's been really, really hard. Mm. But the harder thing is the impact it has on your family. Because yeah. I had to come back from the hospital. I've got three children who are uni. I've got a mother and three sisters, and I kind of did a cheery death drive down around the UK to tell them, mm. although one of them thought when we got there, we come to tell him the dog had died, so mm. humour can help. Yeah. But that's been really hard. But, Simon, here's the good news. God has used my suffering in a mind-blowing, unbelievable way that in my wildest dreams I could never have imagined and I believe he has a purpose and I believe that our suffering whatever it is can be used 
And why do I believe that? Because of the cross. We're told, take up our cross and follow Christ. So what do we see at the cross? We see the suffering of the Son of God. Redemptive, right? Mm. Redemptive of all of his children. And in a tiny, tiny way, our suffering can be a bridge to him. Yeah. If I can, if I may keep going. Yeah. I think people often think Christians look down on them. That we think we're better than them. We're morally superior. But when you're in a deep hole, like me with incurable cancer, you're vulnerable. You're weak. And people can relate to that. When you drive onto a big bridge, like the Dartford Tunnel, there's a tiny metal plate that the car goes on. It goes click, click. It's to stop the car bursting on the bridge itself. We can be that little metal plate onto the bridge of Christ Mm. because people can relate to us, relate to our suffering. And that's been my experience. Yeah, as you're speaking, various scriptures come into mind. I think of Romans 5, where Paul writes, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. You see, that's a wonderful verse, Simon, because it has one of my favorite words in it. Hope. Yeah. Hope. We have something in coronavirus, but let's be honest, everyone's going to die eventually anyway, right? Mm. So we have something that is really valuable and really attractive, which is hope, and people are drawn to that. Mm. What's in short supply in the world? Hope. And we have that. Yeah. And not a, a general hope. I hope Watford stay up, but they may well not. This is hope in Jesus Christ. Mm. And when we talk about hope in Christ, I found in a way people are interested, intrigued even. Yeah. And then the other scripture comes to mind is, is James 1, 2 to 4, where James writes, consider it pure joy. And, you know, I quote these sort of hesitantly because it, it, it well, I, I can tell it is your lived experience, but it's not glibly said. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. And then blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because when he or she has stood the test, they will receive the crown of righteousness. And that's what you're living, isn't it, Jeremy? I think so, Simon. The only thing I would balance is that Mm. sometimes I don't feel full of joy. Mm, Sometimes I think, Lord, I've got enough on my plate. Please give me a break. Mm. And when I talk to Christians, sometimes there are Christians going through terrible suffering who feel angry, Mm. who feel God is remote. And, you know, that's okay. God knows how we feel. Look at Job, right? (laughs) Job Job was was very angry with God Mm. and said all kinds of things that we would think, well, that's not a good thing. If we stood up in a church meeting and spoke like Job, we might have a lot of raised eyebrows. But what's wonderful is even our difficulties and doubts and struggles, God can use. And at the end of Job, God says to his comforters, you haven't spoken well of me as my servant Job has. Mm. 
So if you're listening to this and you're going through suffering and you don't feel full of joy, that's okay. Just be honest with God. And the place I love to go when I'm feeling like that is the Psalms. Yeah, I mean, we're talking in a in a month where I've been to four funerals um, and one next week. And, uh, you know, when someone dies age 87, that was a very joyful funeral. They'd had the, a full race. and then, But then when someone oh, dies age 13 or, or age 50, you know, dear, dear friends. And, and it's just, it's horrific, isn't it? And things happen, Simon, that we just can't explain. So two friends of mine two years ago, Chris and Susanna Naylor, working for Arosha, mm. were coming back and they were killed instantly in South Africa mm. when their Land Rover flipped over a motorway bridge, instantly orphaning their children. Chris was my roommate uh, from university. Mm. So how can that happen? I yeah. don't know. All we can do, Simon, is put our hands in the hands of the Nazarene. Yeah. There's nothing else to be done. Mm. But when we put our hands in his hands, what do we feel? Nail holes. Yeah. You know, we talk about Christian hope. I remember in the war in Burundi, I was once with uh, praying with my colleagues at Script Union, and uh, one of them prayed this. He prayed, Lord God, thank you that all our hopes have gone. And and as he, I just jolted as he prayed that but of course that wasn't the end of the sentence he said lord thank you that all our hopes have gone because now our only hope is you and that's the truth isn't it ultimately uh, and that is there's no easy platitudes or try answers in 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 the world of suffering but we cling to our only true lasting eternal hope that's amen i have two quotes cory ten boom in a concentration camp. I only realized Christ was all I needed when Christ was all I had. Mm -hmm. Samuel Rutherford, I'm paraphrasing slightly. Here comes suffering. Welcome, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, Jeremy, how can, how can we help? I mean, you've, you've already said some on this, but how can we help those experiencing suffering? What's the best we can do? Well, one thing we talked about is presence, right? Mm -hmm. If the person wants it. I think we have to imagine the sufferer as someone in a boat. Mm -hmm. And first question is, does that person want us in their boat? Mm -hmm. So they invite us into the boat. The mistake we often make then is to immediately grab the tiller. Yeah. <laughs> no. We like Jeff's friends, isn't it? Yeah, like Jeff's friends. We must listen. And again, questions are good. So imagine there's a friend who says, how are you doing? Is there anything I can do to help? Just be with them, practical. Mm -hmm. Then we might say, um, would you mind if I prayed for you? I've said that to many non-Christians. No one's ever said, yes, I do mind, because what have you got to lose? Mm -hmm. And then as we go along, gently, gently, kindly, full of love and compassion. And if we want to know how do we behave with suffering, people look at the Lord with Martha. Look at the Lord with the widow of Nain. He knows what he's about to do. He knows he's about to raise their brother, their son from the dead. But firstly, 
is full of love, mm. kindness, and grief as well. Yeah. It's okay to be upset. Nothing wrong with grief. And then we might say, would you mind if I read you a psalm? And um, I always go, because people know it, mm -hmm. to the 23rd psalm. And when we read that, what may we say? The Lord's my shepherd. I find, friend, that God is my shepherd. There's a personal God who loves you and cares for you. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Friend, here's my experience. And frankly, it helps. It helps us if we've been through tough times because we're not then lecturing them. We know what it's like to be in the boat of suffering. And what I say is, that's my experience. In my suffering, Jesus is with me. And um, I hope you don't mind me plugging a couple of books I've written. Go for it. One's called Beyond the Big Sea. The other one's Hope in the Face of Suffering. And they're both books designed to give away to people who are suffering. Uh, non-Christian friends who are suffering. The first one is a head book. It's my story, an expanded version of what I've been talking about. And that's for someone who says, how on earth, if there is such a thing, can a loving God allow suffering? The second one is 20 passages from the Bible, balm and medicine mm -hmm. for people. That's a hard book. That's a book not for someone who needs arguments, but for someone who needs to experience the presence of Christ in their suffering. Yeah. Um, so uh, last month, a friend of mine died. Um, she, we, we had a podcast on her. Her story was that 30 years ago, she was given six months to live. And... It's an extraordinary story, which the briefest summary would be that um, having been given six months to live, she was allowed home one weekend and overnight her hair grew back, having been bald, and a whole load of crazy stuff happened. She was in a wheelchair. The next day she took in her wheelchair, uh, totally healed. When the doctor saw her, he fell to his knees. 17 of the staff on the back of that miracle gave their lives to Christ. Now. I just wonder, um, because we clearly that was a, a miracle. I think if that doctor ended up on the mission field on the back of that miracle as a missionary doctor in India, we get, and I, my experience from Africa is that you do get these absolutely crazy miracles. And so we have this, this tension, this paradox of the kingdom coming now and not yet. In your case, when you were given that diagnosis, I'm just interested. I mean, did you as a family, did you, did you weep and pray and, 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 and seek healing? Or was there an acceptance that this was the path? How, what does it look like working out that? Yeah, I do pray for healing, Simon. And I believe God has done a miracle, but it's a different kind of miracle. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of that carol, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And I believe that God's at work miraculously, mm -hmm. not just in Africa, but in England as well. Yeah. And the biggest miracle of all is that anyone ever comes to faith. Mm -hmm. But sometimes things are spectacular, but often God works quietly 
also in bringing people to faith, by the way. Every person, more or less, I've ever read the Bible with, which is a huge number, somebody has planted a small miracle seed in their life years ago, and somehow then I've been able to water it, and it's grown. Mm-hmm. So the silent miracle in my case is that the chemo shrinks the tumors. So I do chemo, the tumors shrink. Mm-hmm. I stop chemo, the tumors grow again. Mm-hmm. And the doctor, Robin Jones, who's a wonderful guy, who you can read about in my book, is baffled by it. He mm-hmm. says it's really, it's really weird when you keep having the same chemo and he keeps having the same results. He said a few months ago, they had a review of my case and the other doctors, they didn't fall on their knees, but they were scratching their heads. Mm-hmm. So God works in different ways with different people. Yeah. Two things. One, I think God makes us live from day to day. Yeah. Maybe if you're listening, you think, well, comes what it would be like to be like Jeremy or like your friend. Mm-hmm. But don't worry about that. If you get into that situation, God will give you the grace for that situation. God, we can't build up reserves of grace for our walk with him. It's day by day, isn't it? Yeah. That's why the Lord's Prayer is, give us this day our daily bread. And secondly, I believe that what we're called to do is to trust him. Yeah. Trust If I had to sum up the last nine years in one word, it would be this, trust. And I also think when we're unpacking what it is to be a Christian, that's a really good word to use. Because I think when we talk about belief, people often think of an intellectual belief. Mm. Yeah, Jesus is God. Yeah, Jesus raised from the dead. You know, James says, The devil believes that and shudders, right? Yeah. So I think we need to explain that being a Christian, there's an active thing. Mm. It's, I like being a banker. I like to compare it to a check. God has written a check for us. The check is the death and resurrection of his son. Mm. And what do we have to do? We just have to say, yeah, that check, that check works. That check's not going to bounce. That check's valid. And that is, I think, a good way of explaining to our non-Christian friends, I trust Christ. That's what I say. People say, how do you cope with what you're going through? I trust him. Mm. And I trust that one day when I meet him, everything will click into place. And in the meantime, all sorts of sad things, terrible things happen. I just have to trust him. Yeah. All our experiences are unique and different. One way I can I can relate to you, but it's it's a very different way, is because I lived in a war zone, which was uh, late nineties, early two thousands, was the most dangerous country in the world. I lived uh, not sick, but I lived expecting to die because I was driving along roads on which people routinely kill. One time, forty people were killed along the road I got through, and I hark back in a different way to what you will be living. But I held back to those days thinking I was so alive because I expected to die shortly. And that sense of the imminence of graduation to glory with our Christian hope totally assured for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, meant that I lived with a 
a heightened sense of, of reality. I wanted to keep short accounts. I wanted to say sorry to everyone I defended. I wanted to have my house in order. I wanted to tell everyone that I love them. I wanted to share my faith with everyone. I wasn't going to sit around watching TV all day because there, there was such an urgency to truly live. And that is, that's a gift, isn't it? On, on, on one level. Uh, 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 can you speak into that? Yeah, it is a gift. Of all those things, the thing I love doing the most is telling people about the Lord. Mm. And uh, again, he's opened so many doors to do that. And I do feel an imperative, Simon, to do it. Mm. That verse comes to my mind, we must work while it's day. Yeah. Because the night comes when no man can work and the night is death. So in lockdown, which is hilarious really, shows how desperate some churches were. Mm. I did about 120 Zoom evangelistic Zoom calls. Mm. I could just talk about the Lord, especially in the height of lockdown. You know, many of these churches, which were very small churches in places, I didn't even know where the place was, let alone the church. Mm -hmm. They had loads of people dialing in. You know, what happened after that? I don't know. I just feel this tremendous impulse to tell people about the Lord. And also, the more I do it, the more I like it. Mm. I find it addictive. I find it good fun. Um, I, and I find people are willing to listen to me. Yeah. Another thing I would say, Simon, is I think we've become defeatist in the UK. We think everybody hates Christians. Everybody thinks we're homophobic. No, that's not true at all. Mm. There's a tiny group of people who don't like the church. Even they can come to faith. We should love them just the same as anybody else. But 90% of people, they don't know what the Christian faith is about. They have not the slightest idea. And when we come along talking about hope, talking about an amazing person who we trust, and by the way, what do people think of public figures in the UK? They don't trust them. Mm. So we have something that's really unusual and distinctive. People are drawn to that. And maybe it's a bit like, sorry, a bad analogy, peddling drugs, right? <laughs> All we're trying to do is just get people to try it, yeah. taste and see that the Lord, the Lord is good. Is good. Yeah. And how do we do that? Just say something nice about the Lord. Here's an example. A friend says, oh, how's the last few months been? Or how's lockdown be? Oh, it's been difficult. Um, but I find, I just find Jesus so amazing, or so helpful. Mm -hmm. And if you can't say Jesus, that's too much, say my faith. And if you can't say my faith, that's too much, say my church. But ideally, talk about Jesus. And how do we talk about him? We tell stories about him. 95% of the Gospels are stories. Yeah. Tell, this is on the Passion for Life, a clip from me. Tell people stories from the Bible. Here's something that happened to me, Simon. I was talking pre-lockdown, sorry, to a bunch of bankers, mm -hmm. terrible people. <laughs> and I was stressing being a Christian is not about being a good person. It's about asking for forgiveness. Any questions? At the end, this person who I discovered afterwards was the CEO said, are you really saying, Jeremy, that if there were two people in the city, 
One was corrupt, took bribes, spent all their money on prostitutes and drugs, but at the end realized they needed Christ, they'd be okay. And another person who was very ethical and gave all their money to charity, but thought, I didn't need God, they wouldn't be. And I said, well, it's funny you ask me that question because people ask Jesus the same question. Mm -hmm. And this is the story he told. Now, if I'd had less time, I would have told the tax collector and the Pharisee. Mm -hmm. But I had a bit more time. It was over lunch. So I told the prodigal son. And at the end, the guy said, oh, wow, that's an amazing story. I had no idea that was a story mm -hmm. told by Jesus. There is power yeah. in the stories about Jesus. Yeah. And very often I find people say something like, oh, where did that come from? Or, oh, have you got any more stories? Mm. And to which we can say, oh yeah, don't worry, there's lots. And people don't know them, right? Previous generation, yeah. through scripture and stuff at school, they were immunized, right? They had a vaccine against Christ, but now they don't have that. So when I start telling people the story of Lazarus, they say, so what happens? Does Lazarus come back from the dead, right? Mm. I mean, if it wasn't sad, it would be absolutely hilarious. Mm. So here's my tip for sharing our faith. Ask people questions. Drop a small seed about how much you love Christ, how you find Jesus amazing. And if you can, tell people a little story in your own words. You don't need to whip out a Bible that puts people off. Mm. Just make it natural and then see what happens. Sometimes people will change the subject. Okay, you've done your job, you've sown the seeds, but sometimes people will be curious mm. and curiosity is the gateway to faith. Mm. Yeah, I love it how you're maximizing every opportunity. Am, am I right that you, um, apart from being a, a Watford football club fan, you and Elton John and a few others, um, that you did you get an opportunity to, to speak in the stadium? At yeah, you know, that's again the hand of God. <laughs> so my publishers, 10 of those, a guy called Jonathan Poundney, mm -hmm. without telling me, contacted Watford which is a lovely family club, mm -hmm. and said, you know, could you write something in the program about Jeremy? And they said, sure. And they said, would you be interviewed on the pitch at half time? So I wrote an article, a full page in the program. They published it wow. without one amendment, wow. just talking about faith and, of course, about my love for Watford, right? And then at half time, a lady called Emma Saunders, who's now gone on to great things at Sky Sports and was the announcer in the World Cup final. She interviewed me for a couple of minutes and it was the most nerve-wracking thing <laughs> I've ever done. Because you've got 22,000 people and I've seen people get booed because football crowds, you know, they can be fickle oh, things. Yeah. So I don't normally pray Simon about football. But I prayed, <laughs> oh Lord, make the crowd happy at half time. 39th minute, we scored <laughs> 1 0. And in my little interview, 
I asked my son afterwards, how did I do? He said, well, you mentioned Jesus three times. So I thought, okay, that was good. And then, Simon, talking of miracles, a miracle happened. Watford won. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, brother. That's so good to hear. Any, any other, we're sort of drawing to a close, any other stories of exceptional opportunities that you've had that you'd want to share? I believe God puts people in our way. Mm-hmm. Watch out for random people. Mm-hmm. God doesn't do random. Let me give you an example. Sometimes my friends say to me something like, that's weird, that's strange. No, that's the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm writing a novel about a vicar who's lost his faith, and I'm going to use a series of strange coincidences, kind of silent miracles, to bring this guy in my novel back to meet Christ. Anyway, that's a, that's a novel. Here's a true story. I was doing a one-to-one with a friend in a coffee shop pre-COVID and um, somebody else was waiting to meet him afterwards and um, this person came over and he said, excuse me, what were you looking at? And never miss a chance, I said. Mm. I whipped out my word one-to-one, said, oh, I was looking at John's Gospel. Would you like to have a look at it with me over a coffee? And the guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, why not? And he came to faith and he's, he's loving it so much he can't stop reading the Bible. He reads it addictively from Mm. cover to cover. And the other thing that's happened is he says, my wife says, this is his wife, not my wife. It's like being married to a different person. Wonderful. So the power there is in the word. And God will put strange people in our way. I'll give you another example. I feel sorry for every taxi driver. I don't get the tube in London. I get a taxi, right? And some drivers don't want to talk, but many of them do. And uh, for example, I say to the Marsden, they say, oh, are you going to visit someone? I say, I think now I've got you. I say, oh no, I'm a patient. And I've been there for years and years, blah, blah, blah. Then as we get out, I always make sure to give them a big tip, put them in a good mood. I say, would you like a copy of my book? It's about cancer and faith. And so far, not one taxi driver has said no. Mm. So that's take every opportunity. God is a work. The Holy Spirit is a work. And friends, think small. Seed is small. Plant a seed in a friend's heart or a taxi driver's heart about how wonderful Jesus is. Hi guys, this is such a powerful podcast and it's the sort of one that I know you're going to want to forward to people. So if you want to do that, then go to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash WhatsApp. Sign up there and it's just an easy way to get it out and you get one ping a week, that's all it is. greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash WhatsApp to sign up to get these once a week to your phone, just one ping. All right. Let's get back to the podcast. Jeremy, it has been such a treat to share this time with you. In closing, just give us a few things. You've mentioned the books. What would you want people to follow up with you? Are there websites or book titles? Go for it, and we'll put that in the blurb afterwards. If you want help on how do I share my faith, go to A Passion for Life. There's a great friend of mine, John McKinnon, 
who's a lovely Scottish guy. He's also he's a he was a pastor. He's also chaplain to another rather undistinguished football club, Clyde. And John has put together about twenty odd videos mm-hmm. of people, ordinary people, people from all kinds of backgrounds, men and women, uh, people from inner city Liverpool, everywhere, talking about how to share your faith. And if you need someone to come to your church and train you, contact John. Passion for Life. I'm the co-chair with Nick McQuaker. Mm-hmm. We're encouraging people in the run-up to East, share your faith. And how churches do it, that's up to them. Mm. My books you can get from 10 of those, and they're available for a pound each. And I don't get any royalties. Give the books away. The Bible says, cast your bread upon the water. You will receive it back after many days. I'm going to end with this, Simon. I believe with all my heart that if we cast out the seed of Jesus Christ, when we get to heaven, we will get many people who come up to us and say, do you remember you gave me a book? Or do you remember you said something? We'll probably say, no, sorry. And they'll say, well, through that, I came and they're standing next to them will be the Lord. Mm. So we are but humble servants. We're just there to serve. And what do we, how do we serve? Throw out the good seed. Yeah. Well, Jeremy Marshall, you've inspired me. It's been challenging, stirring, faith building, exactly what we wanted to achieve from this. So thanks so much for being on the show. God bless you. Thanks, Simon. So everybody, wow. Do share this. I think there's so many people that will want to hear this podcast. So gossip it to other people. And if you like it, it'd be great if you gave us a top quality uh, rating on whatever platform you've been uh, listening it on. If you want to be in touch with me, it's simongilbert.com or any other any other social media platforms. And yeah, I mean, my heart's sort of beating. It's a mixture of heaviness and lightness at the end of that. Just, just wonderful. Uh, next week, we'll have another fantastic guest. In the meantime, God bless you, Lowe's. Live life to the full. All right, toodaloo. <laughs>